Hello, everybody. This is Brian Namsanenstein, one of your hosts of the Beyond Prisons podcast. Thank you for listening again this week. Before I dive in and tell you about our episode for today, I wanted to make two quick plugs. The first is for the Marvel Cook Fellowship. Thanks to the generous support of Mariam Kaba and readers who rallied to raise a total of $20,000, we're proud to announce our second year of the Marvel Cook Fellowship, which is a journalism fellowship that we run through Shatterproof.com to produce reporting on abolition movements around the world. Last year, we published the work of eight journalists, two of whom are incarcerated, on topics ranging from organizing for safety during the pandemic in jails and prisons, to the fight for reparations for forced sterilizations in California women's prisons. I am really proud of the work that we've been able to accomplish, and it's amazing to work with so many talented writers uh, and be able to pay them well and host their work at Shatterproof.com. So we're doing it again this year, but this time we're paying 2000 per piece, and each one will feature the incredible artwork of Kim's son, Paul Lacombe, who we actually talk a little bit about in this episode that you're about to hear. Writers of color and incarcerated journalists are especially encouraged to apply, and I've included some links with more information in the episode description, or you can just search for 2022 Marvel Cook Fellowship. That's C-O-O-K-E online. All right, second. We are able to continue doing this show in no small part thanks to the generosity of listeners like you who make individual or monthly donations. If you appreciate our work and you have some money to spare, please consider chipping in what you can at beyond-prisons.com slash donate. If you don't have money to spare but you want to support us, that is just as wonderful. We recommend you share our episodes with your communities and rate, review, subscribe wherever you listen. It helps a lot. All right, now for the good stuff. Christopher R. Rogers and Yane Indigo join us for a wide-ranging conversation grounded in the book, How We Stay Free, Notes on a Black Uprising. This anthology, which was published by Common Notions and edited by our guest Christopher, as well as Fajr Muhammad and the Paul Robeson House and Museum, brings together essays, timelines, poetry, photography, illustration, and other artwork to reflect on the George Floyd uprisings of 2020 in Philadelphia. Kim and I ask Chris and Yane about the Paul Robeson House and the place of art and localized knowledge in black liberation movements. We discuss how some of the testimonies featured in How We Stay Free explore the shifting terrain of what's possible and the complexity of formulating, aligning on, and ultimately making demands. This was a really wonderful conversation and we're excited to share Chris and Yane's work with all of you. Christopher R. Rogers is an educator and cultural worker from Chester, Pennsylvania. He serves as public programs director for the Paul Robeson House and Museum, where he has volunteered since 2015. Additionally, he is currently a doctoral student within the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education, where he studies neighborhood storytelling practices in West Philadelphia. He serves on the National Steering Committee for Black Lives Matter at school, supporting movements for racial justice in K-16 through education. Yane Indigo is a member of Ubuntu Freedom, which publicly launched on April 24, 2021, with the development and sharing of the principles of freedom. She is also a strategist with the hashtag LoveNotFear campaign to bring Mumia home, a steering committee member of the Free Kamau Siddiqui Now campaign, and a member of the Black Alliance for Peace. A mother, singer, and writer, she received her MFA in writing and literature from Bennington College in Vermont. She is the lead caretaker of the revolutionary care space. There are links to the book and to some of the things we discussed therein, 
but that is it for now. Please enjoy the conversation, and thank you again so much for listening to Beyond Prisons. So I'd like to start off our conversation by grounding it in the work that you both do. Would you tell us a bit about who you are and the work that you each do with the Paul Robeson House and Museum and the Black Philly Radical Collective and Black Alliance for Peace? Yeah, so uh, I've been a volunteer at the Paul Robeson House and Museum since 2015. I guess my title today is the program director, um, but it's a volunteer position. Uh, we were all volunteers. The organization, uh, which has its start at the West, as, as the West Philadelphia Cultural Alliance in 1984, 1985, uh, we just hired our first you know, person um, in 2020 uh, to help run the museum. But before that, the museum has been held um, by you know Mama Fran or Fran Francis Alston, who founded the Paul Robeson House Museum. Uh, she was a community librarian. Um, and then the, the labor of black women um, have, has really like sustained uh, the house. And another person in that is uh, Vernoka L. Michael. So after Mama Fran passed in 2015, Vernoka took over and I worked with Ms. Vernoka um, to really think about like, how are we continuing to uplift the living legacy of Paul Robeson? Um, so not only do we serve as a sort of like traditional museum in terms of giving tours, uh, that sort of like walk through the life of Paul Robeson. And a lot of those materials have been provided through the Bloxon collection. Shout out to Charles Bloxon, one of our Philadelphia sort of like living libraries. Um, uh, but so not only do we function as a traditional museum, but we also are doing a lot of community programming that is uplifting, you know, folks who are on the front lines, um, who are doing work that is, you know, directly situated within the Robeson legacy. Um, so when this moment came upon us to kind of think about this collection, it was like thinking of the relationships that we have made and sustained throughout this time. And many of those people were actors on the front lines, whether in West Philly or other parts of Philly, and thinking about how can we document and share those stories and talk about this ongoing leg legacy of Black radical Philadelphia and what, how that not only changes the conditions within the city, but contributes to a global ecosystem of radical change throughout the world. Thank you for that, Chris. Uh, Yanae? Hi, so first I just wanna just thanks for thank you for inviting um, me to this call. I wanna thank you, Kim, and also you, Chris, for reaching out to me. Um, my name's Yane Indigo. I'm an organizer here in this um, so-called Philadelphia part of the Lenape Hoking territory. Um, I work with the, um, I work with a number of organizations and have worked with a number of organizations. Um, I, at the time that the book was um, was being developed, um, I was a core organizer for Black Lives Matter Philly. I've stepped back from that role, still support the chapter, still work with the chapter. Um, I was also um, a member of the coordinating committee and the outreach coordinator for the Black Alliance for Peace. I've stepped back from that role. Um, still work with the Black Alliance for Peace, supporting the Philadelphia, the development of the Philadelphia chapter and support work they're doing when they, they need um, an ambassador. I still call, I'm still a member, I still attend their, um, their meetings, um, just had to step back and also um, was one of the founding founders of the Black Alliance for Peace and 
one of the um, the three primary drafters of the um, the thirteen demands that the black did I say the Black Lives Repeat the Black Philly Radical Collective um, I was one I was the one of the founders of the Black Philly Radical Collective and one of the primary authors of the um, 13 demands that were put forward by the Black Philly Radical Collective. I stepped back from those those three responsibilities um, because of the um, prioritizing that I had to do for the work that I'm doing with a group that's not well known called Ubuntu Freedom, which is a um, an, an international um, collection of organizers who are working to lay the foundation for our community to build essentially our own alternatives to the matrix, to the current systems right now. We know we have all of these systems that don't serve um, humanity at all, um, any of, of the um, of what we would call humanity, but just a small section of people who um, are um, the ruling class, the I don't like the term elite. There's nothing elite about them, but those um, those entities that are the primary forces of extraction, of oppression, of war, of incarceration in the various carceral states, and um, of colonization, and that perpetuate capitalism, and um, and to right now we are all subject to the systems that they put together. And unless we build something new, we can't turn to them and say, hey, we don't like that, change it. It's serving them, so they're not going to change it. And so we recognize that it's um, our job to build what we want for ourselves instead of asking other people to do it for us. And so that's what Ubuntu Freedom is um, centered on. And so I have been organizing with Ubuntu Freedom for many years, and we're about to be um, we're about to be um, turning it up um, a bit more um, since that we've got our foundation established. And so me stepping back was difficult because the work of the Black Philly Radical Collective, the work of Black Lines for Peace, the work of Black Lives Matter Philly is very important to me, and that's why I still continue to support that work and to work with them. But I also work, and I have not left the work of freeing political prisoners. Um, and, and that's because there is no liberation unless we're all free. And particularly as we are, any of us who are doing any work that is not upholding the system is considered, a, or any of us is considered a threat to the system if we are operating in that way. And, um, and any of us therefore could become political prisoners. And we have to be willing to continue to strive to um, do the work um, that liberates all of life and um, and we also have to have courage to do that. And one of the ways that we have courage ourselves and encourage each other and encourage others to join the fight is by saying we won't forget you and we won't turn our back on you if anything happens and the system captures you. And so fighting for political prisoners is something that I think literally every person who calls themselves um, a person who's involved in liberation work, anybody who's on the left um, should be um, involved in, on some level should be supporting and understanding on some level. And, um, and I um, put a lot of my energy into that. We've launched a campaign that is um, called the Love Not Fear campaign, um, which is a international campaign that is centered in Philadelphia. Fear is spelled P-H-E-A-R. Um, it's a Philly spelling. Um, in the first 
the first goal and the first intention of this campaign is to bring Mumia Abu-Jamal home. And at the same time, we want to do that and we want to do our work and encourage people to do their work, to be driven by love and to overcome fear in order to do the work that love drives us to do, um, including bringing home all of our political prisoners. I'm also working on the free Kamal Siddiqui Now campaign to free Kamal Siddiqui and supporting the campaign for Leonard Peltier, for um, Sandiata Coley, for um, Matula Shakur, we, all of our political prisoners, you know, that we need to be bringing home um, as well. So, um, that's a little bit about me and my background um, as an organizer. I'll just mention I'm also a mother and I'm an artist. So I have an MFA in writing and literature. I'm a writer and I'm also a singer. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Yune, and thank you both uh, for being with us today. I think that's actually a pretty good segue into the next question we have here, kind of uh, dipping into some of the threads throughout the book and some of the things that stood, stood out to Kim and I that we wanted to talk about. Um, and one of those through lines is the topic of art and how art serves as a vehicle for social change. Um, this book, which is incredible, is not just, you know, a collection of essays and reflections, but is a, a collection of poetry and art as well. Um, I was wondering, you know, Yane, maybe you're the best to take this first or, or Chris, if you want to take it. Um, if you could elaborate a little bit on the history of art in Black political organizing and how the book honors this tradition. Um, sure. So, I mean, there's never been probably ever a time when art was not inter an integral part of um, the fight for um, survival and the fight for liberty. And so we can go all the way back to thinking about things like we talk about the Negro spirituals, we talk about how um, the spirituals would have messages. And of course, you know, we know that they had messages that ranged from um, just encouraging one to, to keep their spirits up, um, encouraging people to remember their spiritual connection and their connection to each other and that they're part of a community, but also messages about, you know, efforts to get free and when was time to to, to make moves and, you know, and, and coded, coded messages that, that went out to members of the community through song. Um, we have, you know, you look at the different periods. You, you, you can look at someone like um, uh, Gene Toomer, who um, wrote Cain and how that book was um, both so it was so dense and beautiful and brilliant in just its language and also in the life that it exposed people to, to help people to understand um, who may not have gone through certain kinds of um, living situations, what that life goes through. You can look at people like Edwish Danticat, who really speaks to um, the Haitian uh, struggles and her struggle as both a Haitian um, and a person who was raised here um, in the United States. There's so many ways that literature and other forms of art, music um, and visual art have been um, a way to both operate as, um, as, in, as expressions 
um, and, and communications around liberation, but also into the point as it relates to this book as, um, as history holders and the ways that um, as items that remind us, tell us, our own stories, tell our stories to ourselves and to each other um, and, um, and, and allow our story to be told by us and to be held by us as opposed to by anyone else who may not be able to speak the truth in the way that we know it. Um, so I think those are um, some of the ways, but I want to make room for Chris to be able to expound on that in particular as it relates to that connection and, and this moment in history that this book was um, seeking and intending to also capture and tell for our own selves with our own story. Yes, uh, thank you so much, Yane. And that was, I'm, I'm listening to you speaking and also like, that was a beautiful bibliography too. That I was like writing the names down to kind of like catalog myself. So thank you for that. Um, so one of the books I have right now on my desk is um, this, um, it's, a, it's a result of a study that was led by Odunde. Uh, and if folks don't know what Odunde is, it's our, uh, the largest um, you know, African diasporic festival um, certainly in Philadelphia, but probably even like across the Northeast. And it happens um, on uh, the west side of South Street um, in the seventh ward. Um, it was led by the Fernandez family, uh, Lois Fernandez being sort of like leader behind it. And they put this book together called Odunde Presents From Hucklebuck to Hip Hop and the social dance in the African-American community in Philadelphia. And in this book, what they are cataloging is that, like, if you look at the tradition of vernacular dance within the African-American community, you see the sort of, like, shifts across, like, the, like, you see the economic shift across, you see a, a, the cultural changes, you see the evolution, the adaptation, um, you see style, uh, you see the organization, right? And so, like, the many different people who had to be there and organize the dances, the type of you know, bands and music and DJs that were there to sort of like coordinate. And I think that 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 tradition of cultural organizing, right, um, is something I come back to often. Um, and I think about the people who have done that work before me, including, you know, Francis Alston, um, including, you know, uh, Ile Ife, uh, which is now called the uh, Village of Arts and Humanities, uh, Kulu Mele, the Afri African Dunk, the drum and dancing ensemble. These represent sort of like organic vehicles of cultural organizing uh, within Philadelphia. And I'm, I'm proud that like, in terms of my work at the Robeson House, we're sort of like keeping that legacy going. So when I think about the role of art within this work, I, also, I think I always come back, you know, Tony K. Bambara, who also spent a lot of time in Philadelphia, Germantown to be exact, says um, the role of the cultural worker is to make the revolution irresistible. Um, so I think about the ways in which, you know, art and it's sort of like many manifestations can become a, a invitation, right? For folks to see their own um, internal resources, right? To see uh, ways of looking at their communities and see opportunities for change and development. And also in some ways own this like work of what it means to like, create value and, and, and build um, like sovereign things in our, in our communities. And I think when you look at like hip hop, look at the story of hip hop, it's, it's, it's certainly there. 
we so always think about like the role of art as a space for cultural organizing. And once you get people involved in that, I think in the types of visions that come forth from people's own understandings of their worlds and the type of world they want to see come into being, I think it's a perfect playground, you know, for um, thinking about the tools that that any organizer um, needs, right? And not as like just the figurehead of an organizer, but these are cultural practices that we have always sort of held on to. Um, so I always connect art into organizing. And I, I try to like blur the line between the two as much as I can. So I feel like this collection was really about saying that like the role of writers, poets, photographers, muralists, they have a, a, a responsibility to this work too. So how can we, you know, think about um, their relationship as being part of the movement too? Um, how do they, how do they document? How do they help us envision what's next? What's on What's there? And, you know, Robeson was pretty huge on that as well, right? He used his, you know, his platform, his uh, performances to tell stories of people's movements from all around the globe. He used it to really like unify folks, right? So I feel like in terms of this collection, it, it was about having that be there. And I think if anything, just the small thing, it's also about accessibility. Sometimes when we get into, you know, conversations about, um, you know, uh, political organizing. Sometimes, you know, it can kind of become uh, <laughs> too, too, too reductive, right? Not focus on sort of like the, the funkiness of life. And I think art has a great way of breaking through that and showing that like, yo, we're gonna do this work and we're gonna be human too, right? I can organize, you know, for the freedom of political prisons. And I'm a dancer, a mother and a singer too, just like Yane said. So I feel like that was kind of like the role that we wanted to really highlight in the collection. And, you know, can I jump back in, you know, yeah. inspired by some of what Chris was talking about? Um, I just wanted to, you know, give as an example um, the Curb Fest for Political Prisoners, which really seeks to embody that intersection. Um, one of the things that happens, and I, I know personally about this, is that there are a lot of people, I literally spoke today to the sister, you, you all may know the story of a young sister who um, committed suicide here in Philadelphia. And her family was very upset because they turned to, to the police when she was missing. Um, they got word that indicated that she may have committed suicide and, um, and she had jumped off of a bridge. And they, um, they asked, the police said they couldn't find her body and the family had to go searching and found, found her themselves. And it's just, horrible the way that that situation went. And um, and I was talking to the sister just not long before this, this before we were recording, and she talked about, um, you know, the, the struggles around mental health that, you know, are part of the community and her desire to really address that and uplift that. And one of the things that she talked about was the importance of art um, in, um, in being able to um, help with surviving 
those difficulties that come with being in a sick world and having to be a member of a sick society and figure out how to be healthy in that, um, in that particular struggle. Um, but the other thing that she talked about when we were talking and she wanted to know a little bit more about me and my history, and she just didn't know about a lot of things that, um, that I'm involved in that she could be involved in and that she had an interest in, um, and had no way to find her way to. And one of the things that we can do with art in particular is help people to know things, including how to get involved in the movement. And the Curb Fest for Political Prisoners is one of the examples of that, where we go into the community and we, instead of, you know, it's a, one of the things that I seek to do is teach beyond the choir or preach beyond the choir, however one might word it. But, you know, it's going into the community and um, and making the movement accessible, right? So there's the understanding how the things that have happened and are happening, just understanding those things and making that knowledge accessible. But there's also how do we make the actual movement accessible to people? How do we actually get people who want to be involved to know how to get involved. And, you know, and art is another way that you can do that. And the Curb Fest for Political Prisoners is actually what is, is intended to embody that. And so, like I said, we take DJs into the community and the DJs have information about our political prisoners and about how to get involved. And so that you can just be rocking the music, you get invited by a political educator that's on the mic to come over and then from there, you you learn about different political prisoners. We made a postcard for each one that people could collect and learn more about. People have come back to me and said, I, I want, I'm, I'm getting that book that this prisoner wrote or that prisoner wrote. I read the card. This was this is a thing that that really struck me. And they want to be more involved and people are able to. And so I think that that accessibility piece is really an important component and that the um, that these approaches around um, art and art is an it's in a wonderful way to make um, move the movement accessible, make people know it, understand it, remember it, but also to figure out how help them figure out how to get involved in it. Both of those responses were beautiful. Thank you. Thank you Absolutely. so much. Absolutely. I also wanted uh, to piggyback on what you both said um, about the, the role of art, but picking up on something that Yane shared about um, how art is such an integral part and has always been an integral part of our movements. Um, I'm a visual artist. I have two sons that are currently sentenced to LWAP. Um, and they're both in Delaware. And my youngest son is um, a prolific artist. Like he's just absolutely incredible. I'm dropping the the link to his work um, in the in the chat below. So if you're interested in looking at that there, but when I say that art has literally saved our lives, like that is not um, an exaggeration. That is. <laughs> literally what I mean. It was a lifesaver in the early days of their incarceration, their arrest, um, subsequent incarceration and uh, convictions. Um, and it has sustained us for the last, you know, 10, 11 years. Um, and Paul's work, my son, Paul, um, has just flourished in, in the midst of all of this. And it's really become a place where he um, 
he is turned to. And, you know, to Yanae's point about, you know, teaching other people, um, some folks uh, at the certain days calendar saw his work and then invited him to contribute to last year's calendar. And he was just blown away. He didn't think that, you know, he's like, oh, there's just some, you know, these are just some doodles I did. And I'm like, doodles, are you kidding me? Like, you know, like this is, this is incredible. Like, I don't see, like these portraits are hyper-realistic portraits and he's creating these things with pencil and a Q-tip, you know, in, in a cell. And for much of his incarceration, early part of his incarceration, he was in solitary confinement where he wasn't permitted to even have a pencil. Um, and getting paper was really, really difficult. And in the midst of that, the thing that saved him and kept him going was, you know, I would send him artwork that I was creating, just little things, whatever. Um, and, you know, he would say, oh, I'm going to draw this thing for you. And he would share those things, you know, with me. And at the time, he wasn't very politically, you know, um, interested in politics, not interested in, you know, um, any of the work that I was doing at all. And that opened the conversation. That's what really began this conversation was around art, because I shared with him just how important that was for me um, in terms of trying to, you know, remain optimistic, remain hopeful, remain grounded, uh, and understand why I was continuing to do this work, right? When most days I was just like, fuck all of this. I don't want to do this shit. I'm tired. I'm tired. I don't want to do any of it. I just want to, you know, I just want to hide. And it became a space where, you know, I could just pour my heart and soul into it. And it didn't matter for me personally, what I was creating, what I share is different, you know, oftentimes um, than what I'm creating just so that I can make it through, you know, each day. And, that resonated with him, you know, but then it started to resonate with other people because he's told me over the years how when, you know, he was drawing a portrait, we did a collaboration earlier this year um, for uh, an exhibit that was uh, up in Maine and uh, he drew a portrait of Ida B. Wells. And it's just the most beautiful portrait. Right. And he didn't know very much about Ida B. Wells and neither did a lot of the folks that he was around. And he was just like, you know, once he started learning about her, he started sharing that story with other people. And then he learned about Martin Sostra and he was sharing that story with other people. He's done portraits of George Jackson, Jamaica Kincaid, um, James Baldwin. And, you know, it was through that right, that this other world started opening up because he was interested in just quotes, like quick little quotes, you know, by these people. And he's like, I need to read more about that. Like, send me whatever James Baldwin, you know, exists out there. And I would. And then he was just like, why didn't I know this before? And it was just, it, it just represented such a shift. Anyway, enough about me. I didn't want to you know, I don't want to dominate the conversation, but I wanted to share that with you because it really, um, it really touched me. Uh, and and appreciate, I, I appreciate that share and I appreciate you sharing the link and I went to it and I looked at his work and it is really quite, quite stunning. The Ida B. Wells, the James Baldwin 
um, is really quite lovely as well. Um, you know, it's definitely good work and I can see why you wanted to take time to speak to it. Um, you know, his portrait of his mommy is nice too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can he, can, he, can he do the cover for our podcast? Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, take more time because, you know, prison, it's like, so by the time he got it done, it might be a month, you know, before we actually got it. And that's it, you know, um, the forces that be don't destroy it. Yes. It just happened in the past. He has drawn portraits and, you know, um, and they've never made it uh, to me, which is heartbreaking and, uh, and very upsetting. But um, yeah, I mean, I, Oh, I'm just really thankful that you were able to share with that. And I, I want to make a connection because um, uh, one of the contributors we have in the collection, Matthew Early, uh, who's currently uh, incarcerated at SCI Cole Township in, in PA, um, he read an article about the project that was in the Philadelphia Tribune mm -hmm. and sent a letter over to the uh, Paul Robertson House and Museum about like, I heard y'all looking for stuff. I'm trying to get, I, I got something, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where our conversation started. Um, and um, Matt, uh, who's a mug of Matt on um, Instagram, you know, uh, follow. Mm -hmm. um, Matt uh, said, I got some poetry that I've been working on. I want to submit it to the collection. I said, perfect. Perfect. So he, um, you know, uh, using the, the legal pad, you know, and he wrote up the poetry by hand um, and, and mailed it over to the Paul Robeson House Museum. And we're talking on the phone. He said, all right, you got to transcribe this and put it into the book. And then when I saw the poem, because um, it is something you have to see. It's not you're not only reading it, you're seeing it in particular mm -hmm. because of the duress upon which it, it is written in the uh, you, it's also the art of how it is written. So when you open up and you go to the full color insert, you'll see it. And uh, it's a, 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 a beautiful poem. Um, and I told him like, yo, we can't transcribe this, yo. This has to go in as it's, it has to go in as itself, because I think there's what, what I love that you mentioned, particularly about, you know, Paul's work is that the idea of that, that labor, right. Yeah. Of, you know, with the, uh, a Q-tip and a pencil or like Matt with this pen and a paper and, you know, and it, to me, it says something about, um, like, using that time, that time of reflection, right, mm -hmm. is also a time of being in, being in another place for real, you know, mm -hmm. and being able to say, like, I'm still connected with, with my folks, and I want to, you know, speak with my people, and I'm not going to allow these, you know, four walls of this cell to really box me in, because I'm, I'm going to stay connected, and I think the most beautiful part, like, so, you know, all the contributors were able to get honorariums for their work, you know, thank you to a grant, the Independence Public Media Foundation. And when we talked to Matt about, all right, yo, we're going to put this work in the book. Uh, Matt was like, I appreciate that so much. How about instead of providing that honorarium to me, what I would like to see is, can you go to the only rec center, right, in, 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 in North Philly, a place that I spent time as a youth? I would like to see a, a, a workshop done for young people, right? about learning the tools of self-expression, right? Learning how to write, learning how to do poetry. And it was just like, I like appreciated that so much because we didn't, like that wasn't something that we, he just said, yo, I don't I don't want this, like the money could go on my books, but what I'd rather see is this 
this energy be, you know, given to the youth and see that work continue because it is, like you mentioned, a contagious spirit. Um, so I, I hope, you know, that in terms of this, you know, this work, his poem, this work, it is about how do we create that contagious sort of like spirit? You know, what I mean, maybe contagious in the wrong is the wrong word in the midst of a pandemic. But how do we like how do we, you know, spread that, right? Spread that love um and continue to like add and invite and and allow people to find their roles and find their tools um and find the front lines that they want to be on right as we continue to build these movements absolutely and um i saw that poem and i was so glad you kept it in there like i when i because uh, i got the pdf a while back and I, you know, had scrolled through it and uh, I was looking through it again, you know, in preparation for our conversation today. And I was like, oh my God, like it just, first I thought I had a different tab open and, you know, it's like I usually photograph my son's uh, letters so that I have digital copies of them, you know, in the event of anything, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I was like, wait, this this isn't Paul's writing, like... <laughs> Oh, hold on. It's in the book. Wow. And it was just so moving to see his handwriting. Right. And like you said, it's it's a visual. It's visual. It's not just, you know, this is a poem that you um, listen to somebody read it loud, but it's all it's the visual part of it. And it's a tangible part that, you know, in my imagination, um, that a lot of what the work that folks are doing on the inside, uh, particularly around, you know, writing, um, any form, any art form, uh, really is, it, it transcends prison, right? It transcends prison. And as you pointed out, Chris, it keeps them grounded to their communities, but it also broadens their connection to other folks and builds bigger communities. Paul's got a tremendous amount of people that connected with him just because of his art or saw it online or, you know, whatever. And they were like, I want to reach out. I want to talk. And these are people that he's had in his circle now for several years. And they really do sustain, you know, him in so many different ways. But it's also um, the way that you described Matt's, uh, you know, desire for a workshop, the kind of generosity that folks feel, right, that we tend to ignore. Um, because, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, oh, they're in prison, whatever, you know, uh, let's not think about that too much. And, you know, then we talk about reentry and the long road home and what people are dealing with now, and not really re being reminded very often um, that folks are doing work, while they're in there, that it's not just, you know, it's not just this quiet contemplation and it, you know, they're somehow figuring these things out alone, that that takes community. And this mode of communication or whatever mode of communication they're using um, through their art is a vehicle for that. So I really appreciate that both of you um, raise that, that this is such an integral part of, uh, of the book and that you highlight this as, you know, important movement work and, uh, and praxis. You know, we were reading a few sections of the book and one of the threads that came up is around the development of localized knowledge as a tool for liberation and how this connects to the longer intellectual, political and historical elements of the black radical tradition. 
uh, we wanted to invite you to talk a little bit about this tradition uh, that has long roots in Philadelphia and more specifically in West Philadelphia. Well, I don't know. I'm, uh, Yane might, you know, I don't want to just be West Philly. Um, but I just, in terms of that tradition, I think one of the things that came up at our launch, um, uh, Duji Machinda, amazing uh, local uh, DJ, but also a poet, uh, who was so grateful uh, when the book came out. He said, I'm, I'm finally published as a poet now, too. Um, but Duji, uh, he shared a story about Hakeem's bookstore. Hakeem's bookstore is located at 52nd, uh, basically right under Walnut. Uh, it is the oldest Black bookstore continuously operating on the East Coast um, since 1959. It was founded by Dawood Hakeem. It is now... Um, run by his daughter, Yvonne Blake. Um, and they also have a chapter in the book. Um, but ha uh, what Duji said about Hakeem, he said, I realized how important that place was um, because my mother took me there in the early 90s. And that's where I got my first copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I've I like, like beloved that book ever since, you know? And I think that that energy of Hakeem's bookstore, because it has such a generational legacy of that. Um, actually, you know, I went to a used bookstore um, and um, uh, uh, Mr. Hakeem would, he, he was reprinting, you know, editions of Miseducation of the Negro uh, from Carter G. Woodson um, to get them into people's hands. Um, and at the same time, um, it was a place that, you know, um, the FBI was tracking, right? Or surveilling, right? Um, and, and building a whole sort of like file around, right? Um, and um, I mean, I, I think it was sort of like, because it was connected to, you know, the work of, um, you know, uh, you know uh, Max Stanford or now Dr. Muhammad Ak Ahmed of the Revolutionary Action Movement was also like a huge, you know, supporter, investor uh, at, at Hakeem's and investor talking about like buying books from there. Um, meaning that uh, this was a place that folks came to think about how do we like build this local knowledge, right? It was a, it was a, a, a space of community. Um, and I'm really indebted um, to that history, right? And I think about the generations, right? That's in the, that's in the, you know, 50s and 60s, um, where you can sort of like, you know, come forward, right? We think about the Black Panther Party um, in Philadelphia. We think, you know, honoring Mumia um, Abu-Jamal. Um, we can think about uh, uh, the 80s, um, uh, uh, work of like Russell Maroon Schultz and so many others, right? That have to me come through Hakeem's bookstore doors at one point in time. And I think about just like these places, these spaces of legacy that need to be sustained. I think that was important for us to kind of uplift in the book that is, yes, it's, it's about the people who hold the knowledge and making sure that they are um, acknowledged, beloved, and supported, and sustained. But it's also about how we, you know, gather and the spaces upon which we gather, because those are the spaces that um, really are like the groundswell for like radical visions and, and radical change. Um, so I think for me, someone who moved into Philadelphia from Chester, Pennsylvania, which has its own history, is sort of like a cousin to Philadelphia, uh, was a way of just like continuing that legacy. Um, so. Uh, I don't know, that's just one response to it, but I'll pass it to Yane, and maybe you could broaden a little bit to talk about 
you know, uh, Black radical history in Philadelphia across the scene too. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I really appreciate, you know, what you what you mentioned. And, you know, yeah, we all know Hakeem's bookstore um, and definitely an important resource and um, an important part of the legacy of Philadelphia. Um, and I definitely think that, you know, we got to expand a little beyond West Philly is a very important part of the community. Um, you know, I'm in the Northwest um, and, you know, and in this part of the city, you know, Germantown in particular has so much history. Um, it's actually, you know, before this was a country, when there were just these colonies, the first um, actual formal protest against enslavement happened here in Germantown, in the Germantown section of Philadelphia. Um, again, and the first formal protest in this in this whole context in the colonies. Um, the, you have the history of, um, of the Underground Railroad. We know that um, Johnson House is one of the stops that was on the Underground Railroad, which is um, here in Germantown, on Germantown Avenue at Washington Lane, um, one of the, the many historic sites that are found here um, in the Northwest part of the city. Um, and there's um, just a, a massive tradition that goes all the way from there to today um, around that kind of, that is embodying that fighting spirit that is just the Philadelphia, the Black Philadelphia community spirit. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, it informs the community that is in the liberation fight today, as Chris was, was demonstrating, um, and it's one of the reasons why the city of Philadelphia is one of the most amazing places in the country to organize because there's so much history, so much legacy that has built and created so many important, significant, um, impactful organizing entities and spaces um, that continue to exist and that um, inform what exists, even if they don't continue to exist now. You know, there were multiple um, offices for the Black Panther Party here. Um, there was, you know, multiple locations where the revolutionary group MOVE operated. Um, and, and, and these people, the, the veterans, as Chris was also mentioning, of just that time, are the parents of the people who are organizing, the parents and grandparents of the people who are organizing um, right now for liberation. And so the long fight um, that we have been in has been um, very rich, um, very, um, very radical and well-informed. And I think that um, well and is well informed by um, a, a massive and beautiful history um, that is what makes Philadelphia the dynamic place that it is in this moment. And, and while I'm giving shout outs, I think some of my work most recently has been in North Philadelphia. Um, so I definitely got to give a shout out to the Church of the Advocate, the work of Father Paul Washington, which was like such an integral place to the Black Power movement. Um, and you know, the, the, there's still a lot of work to in sort of like can, just doing an archival work of the history that was there. It was like the Black Power Convention that was held there at that church through the leadership of Father Paul Washington. Um, Ridge Avenue was a huge place, right? Uh, it was like a Black liberation school led by uh, John Churchville. 
Um, and that history is something that we're like thinking of, like how do we preserve and uplift it? And then uh, one of the projects we're working on right now is the uh, Henry Tanner House, which is at 2908 Diamond Street. Um, it's you know, currently in, in disrepair, uh, but Henry Oswald Tanner, the sort of like uh, global black painter, one of the first sort of like black painters to have sort of like this international acclaim who you know, came up in Philadelphia um, and then would eventually sort of like leave the United States because of its virulent racism and move to Paris. Um, and the Tanner house, which, so the, that's the family house, right? So after, you know, um, Henry Tanner leaves this like, you know, late 1800s, it's the family house. So then Sadie Tanner Moselle Alexander, who uh, she, she's like, she comes up there in that house, right? She goes on to become the first black woman with an economics degree. And eventually, you know, uh, graduates from University of Pennsylvania Law School. And she marries Raymond Pace Alexander, right? Raymond Pace Alexander is a direct mentee of Carter G. Woodson. Um, Carter G. Woodson actually called the house 2908 Diamond Street, the center of black intellectual life in Philadelphia, right? So like, we're maybe because I'm, you know, in the Robeson house and this sort of like, Black, his, uh, black historical preservation is sort of like kind of what we've been thinking about. With all this history is all around us, right? And thinking about how we, one, uplift it, that it is a history, but make it present, right? That it's, it's a living legacy, right? And saying that, you know, when we think about the people who are on the front lines today, there's a, there's a direct connection. And you talk about like the, 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 the fathers, the mothers, the other mothers, and this sort of like, kinship and connection that sort of like follows this Black Philadelphia radical history. It's now sort of like our time to reclaim it, right? Uplift it and think about what's possible when we get connected and organized and build that sort of principle unity to say like, this is how we want to see, and this is the vision as they had, and how do we continue to live and add on to that vision today? Thank you so much. I mean, I, I think you said right there, uh, how knowing our histories and our and the legacies and all of this connects back to our ability, among other things, to have a sense of what's possible. Um, you know, this is actually something that uh, we sensed coming up time and again in the book and wanted to ask you about, um, you know, this idea of what's possible. You know, in some of the stories in here, such as the mutual aid work of Bunny Hop or the timeline of the housing justice work of the Philadelphia Housing Action, there's this sense of what's possible at the onset that can become like malleable and shift once people start to build community power and act together. Um, and, you know, like, I feel like sometimes, you know, in casual conversations, it it's easy to forget that like possibility is created through action. Right. And, and that things that might've previously seemed unattainable, those things can change through collective action and through building community power. Um, I think a lot of it, I think a lot about this, uh, you know, right now, particularly with conversations around COVID and what's possible in terms of life affirming relationships or systems or interventions. And I just wanted to ask you both, you know, is there anything you'd like to share about, um, you know, this idea of what's possible and maybe the relationship between uh, taking action and building community power? Uh, and, you know, also, like you were saying, knowing our history uh, in our legacies and how that connects to our conception of what's possible. Sure. Um, you know, actually it makes me think back to the earlier question you asked about the place of art in the movement. 
um, in particular because I think that art is really important for showing us what's possible. Um, you know, art is about taking that which you know and understand consciously or unconsciously in your spirit um, and using your body to represent it in the physical. And you may do that through music, you may do that through dance, you may do that through visual arts or through words or through language, but the, they create they create an image and they create a collective image. Art creates collective images and those collective images are what become our future, our, our, the reality of our next moments. And so having a, an understanding of the most amazing possibilities is how we begin to envision them. And it is not until we can see it that we can make it real. And so when we are thinking about and talking about something like art is a spiritual process, right? So it's a, it's where you take that, which doesn't exist except potentially in your mind and your imagination. And you, you manifest that into a physical thing. It's an act of creativity. It's the, it's the, very close to what it is when we make a child, right? We take something that doesn't exist and it becomes a whole person with a spirit existing in the world. And that's what art is. And so we, when, but the thing about art is that it, it's something that can exist for everyone who encounters it and they can may encounter it directly or they may encounter it indirectly and it creates a vision. It, it contributes to a vision. And what we see is what, what we see in our minds and the images that we see is what we create, is what we draw, is what it begins to be around us. And so we have to actually um, do, it's like the importance of black futurists, right? The, the, that whole um, movement, we have to actually be the ones to create the vision of what we want. And we have to be really daring and creative in our imagination of what's possible and not be limited to what we've seen, what we've known and what we've been told, but move beyond that to something much more amazing for ourselves, manifesting something that is completely tran and, and transformative. And so when I think about what's possible, the first thing that I think about is everything is possible, but what amongst everything is what we want. And then we need to hone our clarity, a clarity about that and share that amongst ourselves collectively. And as a result, we can begin to actually manifest the most amazing possibility that we want. I love that. I love that, Yane. It reminds me of a SNCC. Um, SNCC had this secondary set of questions in their curriculum. Uh, we had a conversation not too long ago with Michael Simmons, who's one of the you know, veterans of SNCC that came out of Philadelphia. Uh, and the secondary sec set of questions for their curriculum was, well, what do, in terms of like, in this confrontation, right, with the power structure, particularly in Mississippi, what do they have that we want? Was question, you know, one. Question two was, what do um, they have that we don't want? Who don't we want to become in this, right? Who, who must we not transform into in order to achieve the things we want? And then the third question was, what do we have that we must keep? And I think like, I always come back to those questions. I feel like anytime I step into a project, anytime I step into any organizing circle, it's about clarifying those questions. Uh, but on the other side of possibility, right? I was just having this conversation the other day. Um, there's no shortcut to this though, 
right? There's no shortcut to possibility. There's no, it's not magic, it's labor, right? And I think this right. shows up for me, Yan, Yane, in your interview, particularly of the Black Philly Radical Collective, in terms of like, you know, looking at uh, the organizing um, after the, you know, uh, police murder of Walter Wallace Jr. in West Philadelphia and thinking of like, it's about showing up, right? It's about uh, being present and being connected. It's not something that you can, you know, there's no sort of like cute fuzzy words that that are going to get us to a point in which we can sort of like, there's, that that is not a foundation. It has to be true, uh, intimate, authentic relationships. And that is what to me creates possibility. Uh, so it's always a, a, a reminder that possibility is comes it comes through labor, it comes through action, it comes through study, right? So I think um, as much as I like, uh, I, I think about sort of like the dreams of the work. I think about how are we like putting those dreams into our you know our hands, hearts, and uh, feet and soul, right? How are we how are we walking with those things every day, and how does that influence the choices that we make every day? Because it is those choices, those actions, um, and those practices that create the bedrock of our movements, and the bedrock of our movements create the radical possibility. So it's 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 I love possibility, but sometimes it can get too artistic, and I'm like, okay, that's a beautiful image, but let's talk about what like the realness, the reality of what it means to, you know, build community takes. And I think Yane does an amazing job of that and knows how to like work, build community and build relationships that not only can be healing in those moments, but has a vision of like, all right, what's after this, right? And what's the next step? And those are the steps upon which we will, you know, utilize to, you know, become free, to stay free. And I think when we, we commit to that work on like a daily basis, and it, and it comes in a variety of ways, right? It might, like just talking about mutual aid, it could be like, yo, you, how are we delivering food to our communities, right? Um, right now we're in a struggle around housing, right? How are we showing up to make folks that folks have, you know, safe, stable and secure housing, right? So it's, it's that labor that to me creates possibility. And I try to remember that too. If I could just add to that, I appreciate that. And um, what you said, Kristen, I, I would, I would add to that, you know, just reinforce the importance of clarity of vision. Um, I do understand, like, it could be too artsy-fartsy to just kind of like, like, you know, the the words and the the images. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly they aren't anything by themselves, right? And there's a, there's a quote that says, vision without action is merely a dream. Action without vision is just marking time vision with action can change the world. And that really sums it up for me because if you don't have the right vision, then your actions are not going to get you any, any of the possibilities that you might want, right? You have to have clarity of vision. The vision gives you direction and it also communicates with the universe so that the universe can respond and conspire with you to give you that which your actions are then going to um, to actually bring to fruition, but the actions are not, they, they're not enough alone, right? Your actions are actually like the process that in, actually enables your vision to be manifested. It, it's the way that you bring what you've imagined into the world. But if you don't imagine 
the best possibility. If the whole time you're doing the work, you're assuming that nothing is possible. When people say it's not possible, people have always been hungry. There's always been homelessness. Aside from the fact that it's not true, that belief in the the in the in, in the lack of of belief in the possibility that we can feed everyone is why people are hungry. It's not simply that there's a system that does not operate in our in our best interest. It's also that we conspire with that system to believe that what it has given us is the best that we can get. And we inspire, we conspire through our minds and through our belief and through our visions. And we have to have a vision that goes beyond the imagination of white supremacy. And then our actions can take us beyond it as well. So there's the there's the creative component, which is the spiritual component. And there's also the physical component, which is the labor. You cannot get there without both of them. Oh, my God. You got to say that one more that that phrase again the, that you opened up with. Yane. Can you say that one more time so I can write it down. It we was, are recording too, so. <laughs> okay, I'm thinking up for the recording. Okay, it's all right. It's all good. I'm I'm gonna jump in right here and tell you both. Um, I'm using this. I had another reading in my class. I'm teaching um a graduate course on comparative political and social theory, and this bit of the conversation in particular real is very relevant to the work that uh, we're doing in that course. Yeah, I, I think this kind of connects a little bit to what we were just talking about. Um, Yane, I know that you contributed to a chapter in the book on the subject of demand. So I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking um, about the issue of, of demands. I, I really appreciated uh, when I was reading the book and particularly this chapter, um, the way that the very issue and the role of demands is approached with a lot of complexity and honesty in several of the pieces in here. You know, like since... 2020 since the uprisings there's been a lot of talk about like the efficacy of certain demands like defund the police or whether demands should even be made at certain points in a struggle and i was just wondering you know if uh you know you had anything to say or if you could reflect on your experiences um or some of the things included in how we get free um about making explicit demands in movements how how should we be thinking of that um, you know, what are the different ways that we can think about demands instead of just sort of evaluating them in this very flat way as like, you know, is this a good ask? You know, like demands are obviously a much more complicated component of our movements than that. Um, and I was wondering, you know, if, if you had anything to say about that. Sure. I actually think about this because, you know, in, in my mind, the more energy we, we give indirect towards the system, the more energy we give to system, right? And even the process of making demands of the system, there's psychologically and spiritually, there's a communication that we're giving, that we're saying to ourselves and to each other that the system has the right to say yes and the system has the right to say no to us and our desires for our own lives and whether or not we have the right to have those desires be met. And so there is some of a struggle around that idea. When we were making and establishing and writing the demands for the Black for the Radical Collective, we actually quite a bit had our community in mind and just introducing a certain concept to the community around what abolition could look like what is possible, what we can have as a community outside of and separate from 
what the system is giving us and those who run the system give us through that system. And at, so I think that to, to one of the ways that I think about the demands is as a teaching tool, as a, a, a way for us to actually engage our own community and to get our community on um, one accord around what we can create for ourselves. And then whether the system decides to meet our demands or not, we are in a place of, of consensus where we can begin to meet our own demands. And so I think of them all actually, like I said, as a teaching tool and almost a set of demands that we are establishing for just for ourselves, not even to the system, but to ourselves for what we want. And um, and I and and that that possibility thinking of ourselves in any situation. My my first audience is my community, and you know. And so when if we're thinking about them from that place, if we're thinking about that when we're crafting that from that place, and we're thinking about what are what is it that we want? How do we how do we organize and language these demands in order to secure what we want? And how do we then make sure that we can ourselves do the work of exacting our demands of, of, of bringing our demands to fruition. I think that's really the trick is for us to do it for ourselves. We are supposed to be, we talk about self-determination and we talk about that and we have to actualize it by recognizing that we, we set us free. We keep us safe. Right. And that can't just be language at a protest. And then we go and separate and harm each other, harm ourselves or let ourselves or let each other be harmed. We have to actually create the transformation that we're seeking ourselves and the demands to the system. They seem like they're to the system, but they can't just be to the system. The system is not on our side and it's not going to ever be on our side. So we have to really put, make, remember that the ultimate responsibility has to be long to us and no one else if we're going to if we're going to get what we deserve. Thank you so much, Yanin. We just wanted to kind of wind down by asking you if you had any final thoughts, um, anything about the book that you want to share uh, with folks, including where they can find it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And also, if you don't mind talking a little bit about um, the companion website uh, with the resources that expand on the book, um, how we stay, the How We Stay Free project, if you could uh, touch on that, that would be great. Yes, uh, thank you all so much. Um, the um, book, How We Stay Free, was released uh, through Common Notions Press. Um, shout out to Common Notions, who also has like this satellite bookstore, Making Worlds Bookstore and Social Center that is located in, in West Philadelphia. Um, and uh, they released the book. So you can, one, find the book on their website, commonnotions.org. Um, that is like, you know, direct, they're an independent radical publisher. Uh, we're happy to be alongside other books. Like uh, they also like reprinted Mumia Abu-Jamal's autobiography. Uh, they also helped do the, the Red Deal um, from uh, Red Nation. Um, there's so many other titles that I think are worthy of everyone's attention. So happy to be one in the crew there. Um, and then we also have a companion website. Uh, one of the like the process of making this book was kind of two-sided. So it was one a, a commissions process of working a, alongside folks like Yane and 
the Black Philly Radical Collective, Philadelphia Housing Action, uh, Bunny Hop, um, and so many others, you know, in, in, in collecting work. There's also a submissions process that we made this, you know, project open um, for folks to be able to submit their own reflections and we would, you know, find space. Some of those ended up in the book, but a number of them are going to be extended content that are on the site. And the site's in beta right now and I'm finalizing a lot of the contributions. And the website is howwestayfree.com. Um, so you can go there. Um, you can see some of the extended content, uh, learn about the project team. It was myself. Um, also, I got, got have to give a shout out to Faja Muhammad, uh, who's the co-editor on the project, an amazing uh, Philadelphia novelist. Uh, Black woman grew up over in uh, the only section of the city. Um, I, I hope she's going to say only. Don't kill me if that's wrong, Faja. And um, uh, Jared Michael Lowe, who helped edit prose. Jasmine Combs, uh, who helped with poetry. Um, and Brandy Goldsboro, who helped us a lot with like the design and helped us design the website. And we got some uh, other accessories and things that are coming out. Um, so we ha had like a really rich team to help put this together. Um, and we're working on a study guide right now too. So one of the exciting things is that with the grant funds, we were able to buy a lot of additional copies um, and hoping to incentivize those to get into hands of you know, uh, organizing groups were on the, on the ground in Philadelphia, uh, but maybe others as well, right? I think the idea of this work is also about seeing an ecosystem of organizing uh, uh, across, a, across a city, across a region, how all these things can, you know, they have their relationships with one another and we you know, finding those connections, those critical connections, right? Um, so I also think it's important for, you know, folks outside of Philadelphia to be able to see this collection, see the different artists and organizers and different front lines that we are showcasing and try to map them according to their city. So we hope to, you know, get some, the study guides and a, a set of books to folks, both outside and also inside. We're sending a, a set of 10 over to uh, Matt. Um, shout out to Matt early again uh, to do some, you know, a, a reading group inside the prisons and Hopefully we would like to work with the Human Rights Coalition and um, some other folks to kind of get more uh, into the prisons as well. And just keeping this inside outside connection. Um, so you can also like hit us up for that. There's a solidarity campaign that's happening about you know continuing to add more books to that collection. We're working with the Free Library of Philadelphia. The concerned black workers of the Free Library have been great in making sure there's wide access in the library system. And then there's, um, the schools, we're doing a presentation next week for the School District of Philadelphia. Uh, school District of Philadelphia is one of the only school districts in the country that has an African-American history requirement, which is the outcome of a lot of community struggle. And we think that this collection will do great. And just as, you know, uh, Kim, you mentioned teaching it in your class, right? We wanna mm -hmm. see it taught in high school classes all across the city as well. So we hope that with this event that we're doing next week to inspire that and make sure that we're providing access to schools too. So uh, a lot of ways to get in. It's available through Common Notions, available through a lot of our independent bookstores, Hakeem's Bookstore, Harriet's Bookshop, uh, Making Worlds, Uncle Bobby's we're working on this week. Um, so lots of great places. And then it's also available anywhere online. Um, so give it a shout out, find it, share it, let folks know. And uh, another thank you again to the Beyond Prisons podcast for having us on to share.
We want to thank you so much for being here today, mm -hmm. for sharing your brilliance, uh, your talent, uh, talking with us. I feel, you know, uh, re-energized as a totally. result. So this was, um, this was really good and, and timely. So thank you so much, Chris. Thanks so much. Really appreciate being here. It was great getting to know you both. Thank, thank you, you so much, Janae. Please stay in touch. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you all. Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.